Good morning. Happy Palm Sunday. Again, uh, our Palm Sunday message was uh, way back in January, and we uh, talked about the crucifixion of Christ last week, and so today we're actually going to talk about the resurrection. So again, time-wise, we're a, a little ahead, but in all of it, we can still praise our, our God and Savior, right? Well, I don't know if um, you guys have had a chance as uh, your civic duty as American citizens uh, to serve on jury duty uh, and not just actually like show up for the entire day and sit around and, and wait the eight hours till you can go home, but actually have to serve on an actual case. Um, a couple years ago, I had the opportunity to do that. It was a, a two-day case, uh, and I was uh, selected to be one of the 12. And we had a case where uh, a manager of a retirement community was accused of stealing prescription uh, medication uh, from, you know, from the, uh, the clients there. Uh, and so as, as we went, the, the judge sat us all down before the trial and he said, you know, here's what we expect out of you. We want you to be fair. We want you to be honest. You know, pay attention, take notes. Uh, you know, there are things that you guys can uh, imply or infer uh, based off the information. And there are things that you should not do as juries, uh, as jury members. And so he, he talked us through that and, and then we, we began uh, the trial. And so as they be presented the trial, we started, you know, we had some evidence. They talked about things like, well, where is the medication cabinet? who has access to it. They talked about, you know, uh, the, the process for signing medication in and signing medication out. Uh, and then we, we also had some witnesses. So we, we had a lot of the nurses that were on duty came and they, they talked about their experience. They talked about their relationship with, uh, with the manager. Uh, they had a forensic handwriting analysis uh, come in and that person shared with us. They had a doctor that was involved, and he came and spoke to us. And obviously, the lady herself took the stand uh, and defended herself in the process. Now, the one thing that was kind of interesting was that as we went through the two-day trial, we heard the evidence, we, we, we listened to the witnesses, but we never really got into the idea of motivation, right? Why would somebody go and do this. Now, at one point, the prosecution tried to bring up the fact that this individual had back pain. And the moment that that was presented, right away, the defendants uh, objected to that, and the judge says, I agree with you. And he, he looked at us as a jury, and he said, you need to not remember that piece of information, which clearly I've done a very good job not remembering that happened, right? <laughs> You know, you, you can't necessarily undo something that wasn't done. But, but I just thought that was interesting that we, we never really got into it. I mean, was somebody trying to, to make money? Did, was there a drug addiction? Were they helping somebody else? Right? Motivation is also part of understanding the innocent or guilt of somebody. So as we went back into the room and as us as 12 jurors debated and, and talked about the process, we said, hey, there's definitely the evidence there. She is the only one that had access to this, the only person that was responsible. All of that kind of leads to this idea that it would have been pretty hard for somebody else to get the medication. But when we brought up the witnesses, 
No witness could say they, they saw this individual do it. And actually, the doctor that was brought in actually contradicted the information by the prosecution. So the prosecution actually brought the doctor in, and then he ended up contradicting the prosecution's own statement. Uh, and, and again, without understanding any sort of motivation of what was going on, we just felt as a jury, we said, we just don't think there's enough to, to find this lady guilty, and, and she was let uh, she was let free. And I remember the relief that she had on her face when we announced that she was not guilty. Uh, and I remember the prosecutor's face, who just felt like let down and kind of like, how could they not find this individual guilty? But that was our job, right? As jurors, our job was to look at the evidence. Our job was to to, to look at the, hear the witnesses, look take a, a look at the motivation, and try to make an evaluated decision based off this court case. And so today, we're going to look at another case, the case for a resurrected Savior. And we're going to do the same thing. We're going to walk through the evidence, we're going to listen to the witnesses, and we are going to take a look at the motivation of Christ. Now, We've been talking again about it's time, right? That, that Jesus had, had, had been pushing off this moment, this moment, and finally he reveals to his disciples and to the people of Israel that this is now the time that I've come for. And again, he's, he's walking them through what is about to happen and, and trying to comfort their souls. And then he, he goes off and he prays. And we, we've spent time looking at the trials that he went through with, with uh, not only the Sanhedrin, but also standing before Pilate. Uh, and now Jesus is put to the cross, and we talked about last week with that phrase, it is finished, that he went out and accomplished everything that he wanted to do. And just as much as Jesus committed himself to the cross, we're also going to see that Jesus here is committing himself to a resurrection. And it's important for us to understand that where we stand on the resurrection, on, on this Jesus, this Messiah, that whether or not he came back from the dead is going to have major implications for us in terms of our future. And my prayer and my hope and my desire is, is that you would understand exactly who Jesus was. And I think the resurrection is what helps to prove that to us. So if you have your Bibles, you guys can open up to John 19. We're going to start there, and then we're going to move into John chapter 20. So John 19, starting in verse 38, again, Jesus has been crucified on the cross. Uh, they've nailed him, they've pierced him, and he gives up his spirit, and he cries out, it is finished. So later, Joseph of Arimathea asked Pilate for the body of Jesus. And now Joseph was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly because he feared the Jews. With Pilate's permission, he came and took the body away. He was accompanied by Nicodemus, the man who had earlier had visited Jesus at night. And Nicodemus had brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds. Taking Jesus' body, the two of them wrapped it with the spices and strips of linen. And this was in accordance with the Jewish burial customs. At the place where Jesus was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden, a new tomb, in which no one had ever been laid, because it was the Jewish day of preparation. And since the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. 
So Joseph of Arimathea, we're told again, is a, is a disciple of Jesus. He's a follower. We're also told uh, that he's actually part of the religious Sanhedrin, this Jewish religious ruling council. Uh, and so him and Nicodemus take the body, and they, they kind of hurriedly, hastily put the body uh, uh, together and then go and lay him in the tomb. Because, again, they're, they're preparing uh, for the Sabbath, and they want to make sure everything is done and taken care of. Uh, and we're also told in Matthew 27, that there was fear that his disciples would come and steal his body because they had this idea that, again, that, that he was supposed to come back to life. And so they, they said, well, let's put some Roman guards in front. We'll roll a stone in front. We'll put some guards there to make sure that this does not happen and that, that just Jesus who died will stay dead. Okay, so Jesus has been crucified he has died, and now he's been laid into the tomb. So now let's continue in John chapter 20. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and said, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they've put him. So Peter and the other disciples started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent over and looked at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. And then Simon Peter, who was behind him, arrived and went into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the burial cloth that had been around Jesus' head. The cloth was folded up by itself, separate from the linen. And finally, the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went inside. He saw and believed. They still did not understand from the scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. When the disciples went back to their homes, but Mary stood outside the tomb crying. As she wept, she bent over to look in the tomb, and she saw two angels in white, seated, just, uh, seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. They asked her, woman, why are you crying? They've taken away my Lord, she said, and I don't know where they've put him. At this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she didn't realize that it was Jesus. Woman, he said, why are you crying? Who is it that you're looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have put him and I will get him. And Jesus said to her, Mary. And she turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni which means teacher. And Jesus said, Do not hold on to me, for I have not yet returned to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am returning to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news. I have seen the Lord, and she said to him that he said these things to her. And on the evening of the first day of the week, when the disciples were together, the doors were locked for fear of the Jews. Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and his side, and the disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. So again, we're trying to understand the case for a resurrected Savior. So let's start with some of the evidence here. We're told that we have three days. Okay. And it was early on the first day of the week, so the idea is that literally as the light is coming over the horizon, 
the women are up and they're running off to the tomb and, and they're, they're, they're trying to actually figure out, we're told in the other gospels, they're like, well, who's going to roll the stone away? But they, they want to finish the process of burial, right? So they've, they've waited the Sabbath day. They're waiting uh, so they can come. And at first light, they're off and they want to finish the burial process. Now, there is some debate as to which day he was actually killed. Some scholars say, was it Wednesday? Some scholars say, was it Thursday? Some scholars look at it and say, was it Friday? Uh, and if it's Friday, well, we don't actually have three days then, do we? Right? We have Friday at some point, Saturday and Sunday at first light. We don't actually have three full days. And that would seem, again, a contradiction of what the scriptures have spoken here. Right. And, and so we often look at a day as a full 24 hours. Well, what you need to understand is in the Jewish scriptures and in Jewish culture, a day did not have to equate to 24 hours. Quite frankly, as long as anything happened on that part of the day, it was then a day considered as a full day. So if Jesus dies on Wednesday, we have three 24-hour days. But if Jesus dies on Friday, guess what? John is Jewish, and in Jewish culture, we still have three days. Okay, so the Bible is not in contradiction of itself. Now, this also becomes extremely important. Why was three days so significant? Okay, well... In the Talmud, which is a, think of it kind of like a Jewish commentary. They would commentate on laws and rules uh, aside from the Old Testament Torah. They kind of had these additional pieces, just like we have our commentaries ourselves. Uh, it said, we go out to the cemetery and examine the dead to see if they are still alive and have been buried by mistake for a period of three days and do not fear being suspected of engaging in the ways of the Amorites, i.e. superstitious practices. And according to Jewish tradition, a person's soul and spirit remained with the body for three days. And then after those three days, the spirit or the soul would then depart the actual physical body. So three days is really significant in this process because what it's trying to have us understand is that Jesus is dead. There is an argument that Jesus had never died, right? That somehow the atmospheric nature of the tomb, the darkness, perhaps the cold of it, actually kept his body in almost like a state of being comatose that he never really officially died. Okay, well, the three days is letting us know he's dead. As well as the fact that we have to remember he was killed by Roman soldiers. These are professional executioners. I don't think the Roman soldiers would have looked at Jesus on the cross, pierced his side and go, we think he's dead, maybe not. No, this was their job to ensure that he was actually dead. Okay, so we need to realize that Jesus is like, he's, he's dead dead, okay? He's dead dead. We, we got to understand that because, again, there are some that argue that he never actually died because this is important because, again, if Jesus never died, the resurrection doesn't have to happen. But Jesus is dead, and so the miracle of the resurrection must, therefore, take place. Okay, so now let's consider the, the stone in the empty tomb. Okay, remember we said, right, we just said there were several Roman guards that were placed there to make sure that nobody stole the body. And... 
This is also important because if somebody was going to come and steal the body, that would have meant they had to be strong enough or had enough people to actually overpower the Roman guards and then roll away the stone. Now, I'm not saying that wouldn't have been impossible. They very well could have showed up with 100 men or 30 strong men and overpowered the guards. But again, the likelihood of this happening is probably not true at this point. Okay? Because we would have then had a mess of Roman soldiers, and I'm pretty sure the Roman authority would have come down even worse on the state of Israel at this point. And we also have to understand that if Roman soldiers abandoned their post, which is what some say, if they just willingly abandoned the post, that would have meant execution for a Roman soldier. So something would have had to motivate them to leave the area in order to not be concerned about death. And we're told uh, in Matthew 28 that an angel shows up and this bright light to these Roman guards. And so it is more likely that the Roman soldiers were so fearful of the angels that showed up that they would have left because that, in their mind, was worse than the possibility of being executed for death, right? So there was motivation for them to actually leave. And even more so, when they leave, they go to the Jewish leaders and they basically explain what's going on and they tell them, listen, Let's just say somebody stole the body. Again, this is in Matthew 28. Let's just say somebody has stolen the body and we will, we will take care of you. That if, if your commander comes and is yelling at you, we will speak on your defense to help ensure that this doesn't happen. Now, that also tells us one thing. They actually acknowledged an empty tomb, Right? The tomb has just been acknowledged to be empty by the Jewish religious leaders and these Roman temple guards. Okay? And here's the other piece. If someone did steal the body, and it was somebody stolen that didn't want Christianity to be proved true, well, what could they have done? They could have simply presented the resurrected body, right? They could have said, look, or I'm sorry, not the, the, the dead body. Look, here's, here's your Jesus. He's dead. We stole him. Here he is. Now, if the disciples would have stolen him, it actually doesn't make any sense either. And here's why. See, if the disciples stole the body, they actually would have had a stronger case if Jesus did come back to life than if he remained dead. So it didn't actually serve the purpose of the disciples to steal it and then hide him away. And remember, they were looking for a living Messiah that was going to free them from the oppression of the Gentile authorities, right? A dead savior doesn't prove anything to them. He's just like all of the other ones that have come and failed. So for the disciples to steal the body and hide him away doesn't make any sense in that regards either. Okay, so we have an empty tomb, not because someone stole it, because Jesus got up and walked out, okay? All right, now, there's other things we have to consider here. How about the wrappings of Jesus, right? Doesn't it seem like an odd feature that John specifically talks about the strips of linen that are lying there? I mean, who really cares about what was wrapped around Jesus but makes a concerted effort to say, look, those are there in the story for a reason. So Peter goes running in um, and 
you would expect that if someone stole the body, those two things, one of two things would have happened. One, those linens wouldn't have been there at all because they would have quickly grabbed the body and just took off with the entire thing. Now, if they would have stolen the body, unwrapped the whole process, I can't imagine that the, the thieves would have taken the time, as it says in the scripture, to fold it up and separate it. I don't think they would have been like OCD uh, thieves here, been like, wait, before we leave, I have to fold up all the fabric here, right? I don't think that's a logical argument. And it's interesting as well, is that when Peter goes in and he says he saw the strips, and then later we also have it used the second time, that's actually two different words. So the first time when Peter goes in and uses the word saw, it's a contemplative observed scrutinized. So it's literally like he's coming in and he's analyzing and he's going, what just happened here? Almost like it was an actual crime scene and he's trying to gather the evidence. And as he's looking around and he's processing all of that that's happened, then the second saw is the idea that he understood and perceived the significance. So what we have is literally this idea that they went in, they're looking around and they're saying, what actually happened here? Did Jesus rise from the dead? We need these strips, the tomb's not here. They rolled the stone. We can only conclude that Jesus has risen from the dead. That's what it means the second time that word is used. Okay? So, we have more evidence now. We also have to consider the physical appearance of Jesus himself, right? Because if Jesus rose from the dead, we should expect to have actually seen him, or somebody should have seen them. Well, again, there are some that try to argue that this was a hallucination. Now, don't get me wrong. When we are in intense grief, when we are struggling with our emotions, there are things that people do and hear and say that just does not seem logical or rational, right? So is there that possibility? Yes, if we're talking about maybe one or two people. But Jesus appeared to multiple people over a series of time. It's not like we have one testimony from one person at a certain time at night and said, I saw Jesus here and here's what he said. We have different people saying similar things about Jesus in this process. So if this was a hallucination, then this hallucination had to happen to multiple people over different amounts of times, which now is highly, highly unlikely that that would have happened. Also, what do we have? We also have the sensory experience, right? They didn't just see Jesus, but they also heard Jesus, right? Mary's in the garden, and, and he calls her name, and then he realizes who it is, right? We, we also have the fact that, that Jesus uh, is embraced physically by Mary, and we'll talk next week where Thomas puts his fingers into the nail holes of Jesus. And... In two weeks, we're also going to see where Jesus sits and he eats with his disciples. If, if Jesus was some sort of hallucination or some sort of figment of the imagination, why are we also then having all of these sensory experiences unless what actually happened was a risen Savior? All right, so when we look at the evidence... There are some pretty plausible explanations that, yes, Jesus could have, or perhaps,
Jesus really did rise from the grave. Now that's just one part of the court case. Because now we have to take a look at the witnesses. So Jesus has appeared to some women. He's appeared to Peter, to John. He appears to the two men on the road to Emmaus. And then we're told in 1 Corinthians 15 that he appears to more than 500 of the brothers at once. Okay, so we have a very large amount of witnesses that have testified to seeing a risen Savior. Okay, now, I find that interesting because in our world today, we find that one testimony is enough to find a person innocent or guilty. We have a multitude of witnesses. We have hundreds of witnesses that are testifying to who Jesus is. Now, one could argue, yeah, but he's only appearing to the disciples. They're, they're going to say what they want to say. They're going to see what they want to see. They're going to hear what they... They want Jesus back, so of course they're going to tell you that. Well, we have to remember the disciples were some of the most skeptical people, right? And we see there in Luke chapter 7, right, John the Baptist, when he's in prison, he sends his disciples back to Jesus and he says, can you go ask Jesus if he's supposed to be the one that we're waiting for? This is John the Baptist who prepared the way for Jesus, going back and asking Jesus if he was actually the Messiah we were waiting for, right? We're told in Matthew 28 that when he appears to his disciples, some of them still doubted at that point. And in John 20, again, we'll talk about Thomas next week, but Thomas is like, I refuse to believe until I can put my finger in that nail hole. Okay? So if you're sitting here and we're going, yeah, he's just talking to his disciples. Actually, these would have been perhaps some of the hardest people to convince. And why were they convinced? Because they actually saw a risen Savior. They talked with him and they embraced him and they will eat with him. Now, the other thing we need to consider, too, in terms of witnesses, is what about the reliability of these Gospels, right? How, how do we know that this is a reliable witness? Because, you know, as Christians, you're just reading from your own Christian book. Well, we have four Gospels and multiple epistles that all attest to who Christ was and a risen Savior. And depending upon, again, when you look at the dating of this, this is either between 20 to 70 years from Jesus' death to his ascension. So within 20 years, we have the earliest documentation about what happened with Jesus. Which means there is no time for fabrication or legend to have happened when we talk in terms of the span, right? Well, when people write about legends in history, they happen over hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of hundreds of years before someone finally writes it down. So it is such a small window of time that what we have written from when Jesus dies and is, and is ascended to when they write the scriptures, it is such a small window that it's actually very reliable in terms of historical documents. And what we also have to understand is that when we look at other historical documents, and I, I'm only giving you three, we have, to, we have to be fair here with the scriptures. Okay? Livy was a Roman historian who wrote about the history of Rome. And when he wrote to when we have the earliest copy of this document, it was 450 years later. 
Julius Caesar wrote about the Gaelic Wars. The earliest copy we have was 900 years after Julius Caesar. And Aristotle and Plato's, uh, Plato's uh, f- philosophical um, you, you know, books like, like The Republic, uh, those were written, or I should say again, when they were written from when the, the original writing to when we have an actual copy was 1,200 years later. So if we are going to historically accept documents that are over 1,000 years later, why do we not embrace a document written within 20 to 70 years? Don't you think that's a little unfair? And mind you again, these are one authors writing about one event that we say, yes, that's true. And the scriptures have at least four gospels all attestifying to the same thing of a risen Lord. Well, again, Adam, you're, you're reading from a Christian Bible. You're reading from people who want to hear what they want to hear. How come, how come nobody else was talking about this? I mean, if this was such a big event, we would have to imagine that there'd be all kinds of documents written that this guy dies and comes back to life, right? Well, we actually do have some non-biblical writers. Uh, Josephus is considered one of the, the greatest historians of the Roman time period. He was a Jew who had real strong connections with the Romans. Now, understand there are really kind of two versions of this. There's one that many scholars have now said has probably been overlaid with some Christian influence. So the one that you're actually looking at here is the one that actually is more likely what he has written. Okay? And so if we take a look at it, it says, At this time there was a wise man called Jesus. His conduct was good and he was known to be virtuous. Many people among the Jews and the other nations became his disciples. Pilate condemned him to be crucified and to die, but those who had become his disciples did not abandon his discipleship. They reported that he appeared to them three days after his crucifixion and that he was alive. Accordingly, he was perhaps the Messiah concerning whom the prophets have reported wonders, and the tribe of Christians so named after him has not disappeared to this day. A non-biblical writer writing about the so-called resurrection of Jesus. Here's another one. Tacitus was another Roman historian. And when uh, the Christians were around the time of Nero, remember Nero uh, is this, this Roman uh, you know, madman, and he's, he's persecuting the Christians, and he hates them, and he's trying to get rid of them. Uh, he, he writes this in, in kind of a report to kind of help Nero deal uh, with what's going on. And he says, Nero fastened the guild and inflicted the most exquisite tortures on a class hated for their abominations, called Christians by the populace. Christus, from whom the name had its origin, suffered the extreme penalty during the reign of Tiberius at the hands of one of his procurators, Pontius Pilate. In a most mischievous superstition, thus checked for the moment again, broke out not only in Judea, the first source of evil, but even in Rome, where all things were hideous and shameful for every part of the world find their center and become popular. So again, another non-biblical writer attesting to this idea of who Jesus is. And finally, one more, a Roman governor from Asia Minor, Pliny the Younger, he said, They were Christians, were in the habit of meeting on a certain fixed day before it was light, and they sang in alternate verses a hymn to Christ 
as to a God. So here's the problem we often do with, with the resurrection. We hold Jesus accountable to the same standards of today. And by what I mean by that is, how come if this miraculous event happened that everyone didn't pull out their cell phones, start videotaping it, posting it to their social media, start taking selfies with Jesus? How come we don't see any of that? Because it didn't exist then. And quite frankly, this was your history. Right? Josephus is considered one of the greatest historians of the Roman world. We embrace everything else that Josephus read, but when it comes to talking about a risen Savior Jesus, all of a sudden we go, we can't accept that. Why? Because you're afraid of knowing that Jesus actually rose from the dead? Is that what it is? Okay, well... Why didn't he appear to more people? Don't you think it would have been more meaningful if Jesus would have actually appeared to the Roman emperor? I mean, he should have just showed himself to the Roman emperor and said, look, I'm here. Well, we have to remember something. Jesus didn't need to prove himself to every single person. He needed to prove himself to his actual disciples. Because it was going to be his disciples that were going to carry his message forward. That's who he needed to have believe. And let's just be honest. Not everybody always believes, right? Jesus probably could have danced and paraded through the streets of Rome, and there still would have been some that would have said no. Let, let, me, let me give you an example this way. It's like asking a Democrat to watch Fox News and asking a Republican to watch CNN. And then the next day going, so did you accept it all as truth? And I'm pretty sure they all would have been like, no, they're all a bunch of liars, right? There are always going to be some that refuse to believe. So why doesn't he show himself to more? Because he doesn't need to. He only needs to prove himself to these 12 guys. Or I should say 11 at this point. And there's one last factor of the witnesses that we can't forget. It's the women. Josephus writes, again, this great Jewish historian, here's what he writes about the testimony of a woman. He says, from women, let no evidence be accepted because of the levity and termidity of their sex. In the ancient world, again, women had no rights. They were second-class citizens. Any testimony from a woman was considered invalid. So quite frankly, the fact that John is highlighting women here as witnesses to the resurrection actually would further discredit his case because he would have been seen as an idiot unless he's writing about what actually happened. That John is not concerned about being discredited but only proving what actually happened with a resurrected Savior. So we have the evidence, we have the witnesses, I think very reliable witnesses, but what about the motivation? Why would Jesus do this? Because let's be honest, if Jesus wanted to proclaim himself the Messiah, he could have. But he goes and he makes this crazy outlandish claim that he says, I'm going to come back from the dead. I mean, that's really kind of like shooting yourself in the foot there, Jesus. You could have just said you were the Messiah and left it, but you're going to make this crazy claim that you're going to die and come back to life. Because now you've really got to prove it. Because if you don't prove that, everything else that you said is a lie. 
So why this claim? Well, we have to go back to some of our Old Testament passages here. Back in Numbers 21, as the Israelites wandered the desert and they, they grumbled and they complained against God, God sent venomous snakes to bite them. And then they, they came back to, to Moses and they prayed and they said, we've messed up, we've made a mistake. Pray on our behalf. Would you go back to God? And, and God tells Moses, he says, make a snake and put it on a pole and anyone who is bitten can look at it and live. And then in jo and Jonah... He's supposed to go and preach to the Ninevites. And what does he do? He's like, yeah, God. And then he takes about the complete opposite direction. And as the storm comes and everybody's like, what's going on? Who made a mistake? Jonah's like, it was me. I'm not doing my job. They cast him overboard into eventually the belly of the fish. And now the Lord provided a huge fish to swallow Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Again, why is this significant? Because these are what we call typologies. Okay? It's a type of what's to come. See, in the Old Testament, Jesus, or God in his infinite wisdom, lays all these little breadcrumbs for the Israelites to say, listen, I'm laying this path for you, so that way when you get to Jesus and you're wondering who's the Messiah, you can look back at all those little details that I've put in your Old Testament and go, wait, this is exactly the guy that we've been talking about all the way through. And so Jesus is using that to, again, set about what's to happen. Because in John 3, he says, Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. And then he utilizes this idea being raised up several more times, because he says, I'm using that to connect what you understand in the Old Testament. And just like he did with this one, he uses the one from Jonah in Matthew 12. That some of the and this was right after Jesus had basically just tipped over the the uh, he, the the in the, uh, the the temple right over the the money changers that's what it was. Then some of the Pharisees and teachers of the law said, "Teacher, we want to see a sign from you." He answered, "A wicked and adulterous generation asks for a single sign, but none of you will be given except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart." Of the earth. Again, he's laying out the breadcrumbs and he's saying, I'm connecting to what you understand. And we've got one more here. Again, I'm sorry, this is the one where the, the temple. And they respond to him and he says, What sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all this? And Jesus answered, Destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. They replied, It's taken 46 years to build this temple and you're going to raise it in three days? Jesus is like, yes, I am. And they're perplexed and they don't understand, but it will all make sense when we have ourselves a risen Savior. Now, the other thing we also have to think about, too, is why this motivation? 1 Corinthians 15. If it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection? There is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. More than that, we have found to be false witnesses about God, for we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead, but not raised him in the fact that the dead are raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still 
in your sins. See, if Christ didn't come back to life, Christ would be a liar. And if Christ was a liar, you could not believe anything that he talked about. So when he talked about a resurrection, when he talked about you having your sins forgiven, when he talked about eternal life, all of that would have been a lie and you would still be in your sins. And so Jesus needed to do exactly what he said he was going to do. It's kind of like if I said to you, I'm an escape artist, put this, put this straight jacket on me, put me in handcuffs, hang me upside down, light the fire underneath, light the fire on the rope and watch me get out of this. And then I come plummeting to my death. You'd probably go, he wasn't very good at his job. Remember what I said last week? There were several individuals that claimed to be the Messiah, and they were arrested, and they were killed. And you know what? It's the same exact thing that happened to Jesus. Jesus was arrested, and Jesus was killed. But what's the difference? Jesus came back to life. None of those other messiahs did. So when we look at the resurrection, I want you to have confidence to say, this miraculous work is not a figment of our imagination. It is not a, a coaxed up story by a bunch of religious people that need something to believe in. I want you to have confidence that the resurrection, based off the evidence of Christ, based off the evidence that we see in the Gospels, based off the motivation of his desire to do what he did, you can have a sound mind and saying, yes, this is true. And so then what does that mean if this is true? Well, Jesus also gives us this picture. Let's, let's finish reading the scriptures. Verse 21. Again, Jesus said, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone his sins, they are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. So what do we have? He shows up to his terrified disciples who are skeptical, who are fearful that they're going to die. And Jesus shows up and he says, look, everything that I've been telling you is true. And I stand before you in the flesh. And they go and they believe and they worship. And then Jesus says to them, now that you've believed, now that you get it, now that you understand exactly who I am, I offer you peace, purpose, and power. Shalom. The overarching, complete wellness and, and the, the mental, the physical, the, the complete peace of your body, I am giving to you because you can rest and realize that I have come back from the dead. And therefore, when I say your sins are forgiven, your sins are forgiven. I say to you that one day you will live with me in eternity. You now can know that is true. So live at peace. And now that you have the peace within your soul to understand this, I'm telling you your purpose which is to go, to go forward and tell people that their sins can be forgiven in Christ. That is your mission, to go throughout the ends of the world, to go forward and do this. And if you don't feel you're qualified, I'm giving you the power of the Holy Spirit to do it. 
Because now that you believe, you have a job to do. You know, there, there's one other piece of evidence that scholars look at for the resurrected Savior. And it's this. After Jesus died, around 100 AD, they said there was about 10,000 Christians. 100 years later, there was 200,000 Christians. 250 years after that, we're now at a million. And with 200 years after that, from 100 AD to 300 AD, we go from 10,000 Christians to about 6 million Christians. Because the people that he needed to prove that he was alive, he proved it to. And when he said, go, they went. Because, see, here's the bottom line. The growth of Christianity, Christianity doesn't happen if Jesus is still dead. Because, see, people don't give up their lives for a lie and people don't give up their lives for a dead man. So the fact that Jesus proves himself turns these fearful disciples into bold Christians who are now willing to die for their faith. Nobody dies for a lie, guys. N.T. Wright, a, hist uh, a Christian writer, theologian, says, as a historian, I cannot explain the rise of early Christianity unless Jesus rose again, leaving an empty tomb. We'll have Easter Sunday next week. This, this is the time where people feel more religious. They're more apt to hear the words of the gospel. They're more apt to consider the reality of who God may be and where they stand. Let us not lose out on this opportunity when the soil is ripe during the season of Easter to be the evidence for a resurrected Savior. If we believe this to be true, we should be the bold Christians that are willing to die for a living God. We should be the ones that are this week and into next until the day that we die are proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ and telling them their sins can be forgiven. And we should have the confidence and the hope that no matter what happens, we will spend eternity with him. Let us be the ones that are willing to sacrifice the way that Christ sacrificed for us. Let us be those ones that are willing to be bold for our faith and joyous in a God that loved us. Let, let us be the hope, let, let us be the good news of the gospel to a world that desperately needs him. We are the light and the testimony to a dark and fallen world. And so when he said, I need my disciples to believe, that's you and I. And since we believe, we have the peace, the purpose, and the power to move forward. Let's pray. God, your, your scripture is not just one of make us feel good. It's not just fancy words and fancy language that sound nice on paper. 
But Lord, you have proven to us that your word is reliable. That, Father, you are reliable. That we can trust in you in the darkness of our moments, in the pain and the anguish, to know that, Father, you have risen from the dead and you have loved us. And so, Lord, let us be confident in who you are. Let us be confident in knowing that you loved us so dearly that you went to the cross, you shed your blood, and by the shedding of your blood, our sins have been forgiven. And Lord, we have been transformed to not cower in a locked door, but to stand boldly on the streets, proclaiming that you have risen from the dead and you are Lord. Amen.